Welcome to the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection, where Colorado trial lawyers share insights from their latest cases. Join me, Keith Buscelli, as we uncover the stories, strategies, and lessons from recent Colorado trials to help you and your clients achieve justice in the courtroom. The pursuit of justice starts now. All right. Welcome back, everyone. I am Keith Fuselli, and we are here for another Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection. And I could not be more excited to have my good friend Dan D'Angelo and Tyrone Glover on to talk about an absolutely fantastic result they had involving a client with a traumatic brain injury. But before we dive in and talk about that case and what worked and what didn't, like to get to know you both a little bit more. And Tyrone, I don't believe that I've had the pleasure of meeting you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how it is you became a trial lawyer. Yeah, so I was a public defender in the Denver trial office. So kind of cut my teeth doing criminal cases at the volume public defenders do. Tried everything from misdemeanors to homicides, high-level felonies. And then when I got out in private practice, I was doing criminal defense, but I always really had this itch to scratch and get in there and go on the offensive and and seek out justice as opposed to uh, always playing defense. So I started with some civil rights cases, but then I connected with Dan around PI because I really started to see just the, the injustices that folks were suffering on the end of these insurance companies that we all sort of think that we can trust and at the end of the day are always going to do right by us. But the same injustices I was seeing both with the police and with our criminal justice system, I was seeing at the hands of these corporations. And so that sort of gave me this itch to get into PI. And Dan, very graciously, I remember still sitting in his office years ago, and he's given me all of these books and all of these resources and telling me about CTLA. And we just started working up cases together. And it seems like the initial cases that all came through the door were these mild, moderate traumatic brain injury cases. So here we are. Did you find, I'm I'm curious, because I I think I know the answer, but I'm curious if my instinct is correct. Was the transition from public defender, civil rights work to personal injury, was that easier or harder of a transition than you would have thought? So some things were harder and some things were easier. So the lead up to trial, I think as a, public defender is very familiar. You sort of jump in at pretrial when you're in criminal. But in civil, and especially in PI with the gathering of of medical records and talking to your client about the treatment they're doing and their different treatment options, that's something that we really don't do in criminal. And so sort of the building up of the case the making sure you're you know instituting best practices in the lead up and then having a really artful way of getting through discovery is something that you know as a criminal practitioner I had to learn but once we get through all of that and we're locked and loaded and we're getting ready for trial and we're talking about cross and voir dires and and, and different sort of themes and theories felt right at home but sort of getting there is the part that feels a little foreign. And for anyone who's listening that's sort of interested in getting into the world of being a plaintiff's trial lawyer, would you highly recommend the route of the public defender's office first? I can tell you, you know, I'm a former prosecutor, and I think if someone came to me, I would say public defender's office all day long versus the prosecutor's office. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. So I think, and it's interesting because the skill set of trying cases is one that I maybe only use a couple times a year, but it's one that I'm just so glad that I have in my, that I've done dozens of of trials and high stakes trials. So just knowing that I've done that and I have it in my pocket and I know if we go into the deep water, I'm prepared. That's just so invaluable. The thing that I liked about the public defender's office is you don't get to choose your battles. They come to you, a file lands on your desk If your client wants to exercise that constitutional right to go to trial, you're stuck with the facts. I've inherited cases where there's not been a defense for years and no one could figure out what the defense was going to be other than, you know, they didn't prove it. And you just have to figure out how to lawyer. Whereas 
you know, I think if you can always dismiss a case, if you can always figure out how to deal a case, sometimes you don't have to go through the mental gymnastics you do as a public defender when you're really getting the, the worst cases that I think we deal with as lawyers. I always use the the phrase, my worst fact in my civil case is still 10 times better than my best fact in my public defender cases. So, um, <laughs> you know, that's what you're dealing with and learning to still prevail under those circumstances. I don't know. I think it just makes you a, a good lawyer. And one last question before we uh, hear from Dan. Was there anything about working at the public defender's office and working those cases up for trial that taught you about the investigation needed to get your best case, whatever that case may look like at trial? Absolutely. I mean, it's imperative because when a case lands on your desk, it's already been investigated and it's been investigated by some of the best investigative units. And especially if you're dealing with federal cases, you know, you're dealing with the ATF, the FBI, the the DEA, and then you're dealing with the various police departments. They've been investigating. And if it's a serious case, sometimes for months or even years, Mm -hmm. they've got a head start on you. And you've got to figure out how to, within speedy trial of six months, essentially get caught up and find those angles or those areas that they haven't investigated, the, the stuff that they've missed. Otherwise, I think at the end of the day, you don't have a shot because a good prosecutor is going to bring a case that's essentially teed up for a, a guilty verdict and they're going to use that leverage. And so you having to go back and really do detailed investigation and find out the stuff that they've missed is imperative for getting justice for your client. Oh, that's great. And uh, I've had the great fortune of knowing Dan D'Angelo for many, many years. And I guess I don't know the answer to this, but what led you into the world of plaintiff's trial work? Great question. It's it's kind of a long road. And it would probably start back to when I was in undergrad in uh, upstate New York, working for a small kind of boutique law firm. I worked with this great trial lawyer named Ray Schlaughter in Ithaca, New York, where I went to undergrad. And he kind of showed me the ropes. Uh, we did some criminal defense work, but a lot of the trial work that that he did was also personal injury. You know, some, some pretty traumatic, uh, severe injuries. And part of my job, which I was given the task of, of doing, was, was kind of being this kind of jack of all trades. You know, I thought because I was a young kid, you know, I knew computers and, you know, all the stuff. And initially that was kind of my thing. But I was really given the reins by Ray to be an investigator. Hmm. I would go out and I would investigate cases. I would go out and I would meet with the clients, witnesses. I'd interview them. I would ask them anything that I thought was relevant and kind of learned that way. I would go to intersections and I would be tape measuring out intersections and stuff, you know, for like somebody who got a DUI and, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, whether that, you know, did the police do, you know, proper, you know, uh, you know, stop in, and, uh, in the case. And I would go listen to hours and hours and hours of local municipal tapes because we had a client who was repeatedly getting shut down at public forums and she was like, you know, this person who would advocate strongly for her beliefs. But, you know, when it came time to the clock, you know, they were always cutting this person off. So I had to I had to record all that stuff and create charts and, you know, and all this stuff. I would do like investigations involving car crashes where we had this case where um, this was like when Fast and Furious was just coming out. And some young kids were souping up their cars and going out and joyriding. And they led to a very serious uh, injury and crash. And so I I learned about tread patterns on your car and how uh, tires and how you shouldn't have different tires put on the car. So I kind of learned in this environment before I went to law school about personal injury and, you know, working up the case. and trying to find the facts that, you know, help your case or, you know, maybe ultimately hurt your case. Uh, So that was really kind of my first go at PI. And then I went off to law school. And after I got out of law school, I clerked for a judge in Denver District Court. 
and then I did defense. Uh, I did defense work. I did medical mm. malpractice. Oh wow! Um, wasn't my my thing. And I went and worked for some other law firm for for a few years, and then realized, you know, I went to law school because I wanted to work for myself. And I had some other friends who were for PI lawyers uh, like yourself, and just started teaching myself PI work because that's that's what was coming in the door. And um, I I just loved it because it kind of just harkened back to what I was doing in undergrad, you know, helping people who who are injured and you know getting them through this process because as much as what we do is such a legal courtroom oriented evidence, you know, all this stuff, you know, at the end of the day, we have clients who are really seriously injured and they've never been mm-hmm. through this before. They've never dealt with an insurance company before. They've never dealt with these serious injuries, you know, understanding what they are, you know, why aren't they getting better? You know, what should they do? You know, who should they see? Because a lot of times I see in my practice, you know, people are struggling. They, they just, they're, you know, their primary care physicians, you know, they're busy, they're overworked, they're billing in 15 minute increments. <laughs> they're not thinking about their case, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, I just really enjoyed that aspect of being kind of this, you know, quarterback who can, you know, help the client who's not been through this before and try to get them steered in the right direction so that, you know, ultimately they get better. Right? Sure, and sure. then hopefully that recovery from their injuries, you know, that, that, you know, helps us, you know, in our case, I mean, nobody wants a seriously permanently injured client, right? They want, right. we all want them to get better. And I think that's ultimately what drives me is, is just, just, you know, just a pure, simple helping people who are in a tough spot. Great. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how you investigated cases, your sort of your history in looking into cases and how you came to have the case that we're here to talk about. So if you would give the listeners a little story about the case with the amazing result and to cut to the chase, we're talking about an almost $3 million verdict in Denver district court on a mild traumatic brain injury. How'd the case come to you? Why'd you decide to take it? And was there any part of your investigation that proved to be critical? Yeah, the case actually came to be through Tyrone. Um, as Tyrone was saying, kind of at the beginning of the, the podcast, we started working on cases together because I did PI. You know, we knew each other and you know had coffee a few times, just talked about cases and things and, and, and PI. And I remember the day like it was yesterday. I'm sitting in my office in downtown Denver, and I get a phone call from Tyrone. He says, "Hey, I got this uh, client who was hitting a crosswalk by a car." And would you like to work on it with me? And so, you know, I do what every lawyer does. Well, you know, tell me a little bit about the case and, you know, what's going on. And so he told me and I'm like, wow, that that intersection is four blocks from my office. Now, whether the intersection is four blocks from my office or not, uh, if it was, you know, 40 miles from my office, I would have gotten in the car and gone to the intersection. Hmm. I really try to put myself always in the environment of, you know, where this happened, because it's easy for us to jump on the computer, just Google it and, you know, see what it looks like, but you're, you're just not in the best position to observe everything. So I hang up the phone. I walk down the street, four blocks from my office. I'm standing at the intersection, which is, it's in a very busy downtown Denver intersection, you know, one and a half blocks from the Capitol it's, a, it's an area I'm very familiar with. And it's, it's, it's two one-way streets coming together. And I'm, I'm standing on the corner looking around and I see this building and it's got video cameras. Wow. And I see this, this gentleman walk around the corner and he's clearly a scuss of security attire on. And, and I just strike up a conversation with him and I tell him who I am and, and ask him, hey, you know, I got a client who was seriously injured in this intersection and I see there's cameras shooting the intersection. Can you show me the tape? Wow. And he was like, absolutely. He was so excited. He, 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 he invited <laughs> me immediately. I think he was so bored, you know, probably he's like, come on in, I'll show you. I mean, he's showing me the, you know, the inner workings, you know, the back office. And he's like sitting down at the desk and, and, and I'm like, this is awesome. Like, you know, this, this guy is like super, you know, excited to help us. And we're sitting there and I'm like, okay, can't wait to see the tape. And he's like, oh, this video only shoots for 24 hours. We got to get it from offsite. So I said, okay, great. Who do I got to talk to? He gives me the name of the manager 
you know, I immediately contact the manager, tell him what's going on. And the manager says, great, love to help you out, but you have to send us a subpoena. Oh, okay. So I'm like, shoot, you know, we're pre-litigation. We haven't even filed suit yet. But one of the circumstances in this case was, is that our client was ticketed. Okay. By this civil investigator who just showed up and took some, what seemed to be a pretty poor investigation into the facts of what happened and took the driver's word that they were turning right on a green light when that wasn't the case and tickets our client. So we had the traffic court case and that's when I tell Tyrone, like, hey, I know who the property manager is. We need a subpoena. How do we do this? And he's like, great, you know, we got the traffic court case. Let's just do it through that. Great. So we end up issuing the subpoena through the traffic court case and they lose the tape. Wow. The property manager calls us up and like, you know, I gave this job to, you know, some associate at the building and they deleted the tape. And we were just like, oh, no. Wow. Because I know doing this kind of work, right? You know what the defense is going to say? Oh, it's your it's your client's fault. You know, they're always going to come up with some excuse, right? And we really wanted to have the tape. We needed the tape. You know, the the video is you know, worth a you know, million words, you know, almost three million words. So, you know, so in this case, so, so like, we're like going, oh man, so what do we do now? Well, Tyrone had a connection with this forensic uh, computer firm that we then retained to go down and see, right? Because we know, right, digital information, it, I don't think it's ever gone, right? It's just how hard is it to get it? Okay. So we end up sending this forensic firm down to the building that that housed this information um luckily they were able to retrieve it they were able to recover it there was some issues with the beginning of the video given how i guess the the data was maybe deleted or or something but we got the video ultimately in this case and it turned the case completely 180 in our favor because i called up the adjuster from chubb when I was, you know, introducing myself that, you know, we represented this client and the first thing out of the adjuster's mouth was this snarky comment of, oh, you represent the lady who walked into the side of, you know, my insured's Range Rover. And you don't often get this kind of like, oh, that how this is going to go? You don't often get that little comeback opportunity. And I said, well, actually, I represent the woman who was, you know, hit by your insurance Range Rover, their front bumper hit her and she didn't walk into the side of the vehicle and she was thrown into the adjacent sidewalk. And that's who I represent. So can I get your information so I can send you a letter of representation? And he's like, well, you know, how do you know that, you know, she didn't walk into the side of his car? And I was like, well, you know, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, we've got a video of the actual incident. Wow. And it, you can just hear the air go out on the other on the room, the other side. <laughs> he's like, oh, you know, will you send that to me? <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. Send it to you. So the investigation part's great, right? It takes work. You know, you do this stuff very early on in the case. And with that information is, you know, in my opinion, is is probably the only reason, not the only reason, but the major reason why we were able to get the result that we got. Because anytime you have, I think, a disputed factual scenario of how this event happened, right, unless you have the tape, the jurors are going to be biased against the plaintiff. You know, they, they are already. Sure. And so we knew going in, we needed to, to, you know, build this case up as strong as we could, you know, to show that, no, what this defendant said happened did not happen. And here's how we know. And you can watch the tape, ladies and gentlemen, because, you know, I read the cases where it's plaintiff or it's a pedestrian versus car at an intersection. And, you know, and I'm seeing, you know, jurors are like, let's just split it down the middle. 50 50. You know, we, we weren't there. We didn't see it. And, you know, who knows what happened? And it's he said, she said, right? 
I knew that from the beginning it was going to be he said, she said. And without the tape, you know, we were going to be in that spot of they could just split it down the middle. Let me ask you this. Had you not gone to the intersection when you did, and if you had just sat back, waited for the police report, and then gone through normal discovery, maybe a year later, tried to get the tape, you think you would have gotten it? Or is it a direct result of you going when you did? I think we would have we would not have gotten it because you don't know what the policies and procedures are for these buildings, you know, that are running these tapes. You know, are they taping over them, deleting them within 24 hours, 48 hours, one month? And also, we didn't want to rely on the the civil investigator who did this did this uh, investigation because it was it was completely against our client. Hmm. I mean, this guy was the civil investigator took took the said in the report that there was a witness. And after we, and that's why they ticketed our client, we found that witness and we talked to that witness and this witness was coming out of a cupcake shop at the time it happened, didn't even see it. The only thing they heard was screaming from our client. And then they walked up the block and, you know, appeared at the scene. They never witnessed it, but this civil investigator somehow interpreted it that this person coming out of the cupcake shop witnessed it. And then took the defendant's word that they had a green light when the video clearly showed that they were taking a right on a red. Wow. Fascinating, fascinating. Just to get to the case and the injuries. So either Tyrone or Dan, can you give us a little overview of the injuries to what your client suffered and what the defense had to say about those injuries heading into trial? Yeah, maybe. How about, Dan, you talk about the I guess medically what's going on and I can talk about how it's sort of manifesting for her over the years. And one of the things about this case is it went to trial roughly four years after the crash. And so, especially with a traumatic brain injury case, we got to see the ebb and the flow, the deterioration, the hard times, the escalation of symptoms every time we came close to the anniversary so the picture we were able to paint for a jury by the time it went for went to trial, I just think was was so thorough and really captured the struggles of our, our client because she had been struggling for, for years by the time we got to tell her story. But I think, yeah, Dan, if you, if you want to take the, the intricacies of what was happening and I can talk about how it's manifesting. That sounds great. Yeah, and this is what's fun working with Tyrone. I mean, Tyrone's just an amazing lawyer. Uh, but yeah, you know, he really, you know, knows the trial stuff. And and for me, you know, I dive deep into the medicine. I've done, you know, Keith, you and I did a, a brain injury case together way back um, in the day. And so I've learned from from other lawyers, uh, but also, you know, the doctors, you know, I try to just be a sponge and and pick up as much as I can about brain. I, you know, I don't focus in TBI, but that's what I like to do. And that's what I find most interesting. So when we get these cases, you know, about brain injury, right, you know, there are certain things that I look for that I'm not a medical doctor, right? You know, I don't claim to be one that, you know, I, I tell my clients, look, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, you know, you need to be having these, you know, frank, open conversations with your doctors and being that squeaky wheel of, Things aren't right. What's going on with me? You know, how do I get better? Those kinds of things. Because those doctors aren't thinking, what is the information that we need in this case, right? For, sure. for for the litigation, right? They're just they're thinking, you know, again, right? Like, you know, whatever they're doing during their day and how they run their practices. You know, I don't try to guess, but you know, I know doctors are very busy, right? And and I don't think doctors generally are big fans of being involved in PI cases. So, you know, you've got that to deal with too, right? So I know in a TBI case, generally the things I'm looking for that go missed by the doctors, right? And vision and the vestibular system are very complicated areas that, you know, I'm still learning about, but I think the vestibular system component of a TBI case is huge, it sets you apart as a lawyer if you are familiar with TBI. People generally understand, you know, hit my head, TBI, right? What's on, you know, the MRIs, you know, as we know, mild traumatic brain injury, generally the techno, there's no techno findings on uh, imaging, right? You know, it's, sure. it's just not there. But there are other things that all, when you put this 
puzzle together of all these different things that are going on with people when they have suffered a mild traumatic brain injury starts to you know build upon each other and support the brain injury and how severe it is right because right we're trying to convey to a jury what is the impact on the individual cognitively and it also manifests physically and emotionally right with them and so we have to tell this story and you know and how do we do that and so you know our client w- was having um and and is still having she has chronic dizziness wow. and i know given my history with tbi cases well Dizziness is a generally a component of a brain injury case. I'm always looking for the dizziness and I'm always looking for vision issues. That generally goes missed by the client. They don't realize what's going on. Um, and sometimes the practitioners are not looking for it. Sure. And so having known that and been through that in, in other cases, you know, really helped us with our client. Be like, look, you know, we're not doctors. But, right, we've been through this before. Our job, right, I want to help you get better, of course. But I know in terms of, you know, your case, you know, your treaters are the ones who are going to be coming in telling the jury what your injury is, how they figured it out, right? And is this permanent or not? And so getting the client to understand, you know, how important it is to, you know, be persistent don't give up, right? Because it can get very frustrating for these people to, to go through this and could totally understand why a lot of them get frustrated and they just want to throw up their hands because they're not getting better. And it takes, you know, a lot of effort from the lawyers. You know, we're also like counselors, right? You know, telling the client, look, you know, it's 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 not just you. It's not, you know, this is not a pun. It's not all just in your head, right? There, are, you know, there's something serious going on with you. Let me jump in and ask you a question because I know that you had the vestibular doctors testifying at trial. What did the defense have to say about the vestibular component of your case? And can you also speak that is objective evidence and the VNG response? I know that's something that came up in your trial. As I was reading sort of the summary of what happened here, I was thinking, well, what did the what did the defense neurologist say about the vestibular issues? Yeah, well, the defense neurologist basically just piggybacked on the neuropsychologist and the other doctors. Their neurologist was um, Dr. Eric Hammerberg, and he's he's an old school doc. He he's been you know around for a long time. Old dude came you know walking into the trial, you know, very gingerly, you know. Defense counsel had to move the podium out of the way for him to, you know, to get to get in the trials. This is big thing, right? And he comes walking in and, you know, had his whole, you know, notebook with him and plops down on the stand and he's got that in front of him and he looks the part. But, you know, at the end of the day, right, all their tree, all, all their experts never saw her, never, never saw her, examined her, nothing. It was all just, well, you know, mild traumatic brain injury should have got better. And if it didn't get better, it's because there's other motivations, right? There's Mm. there's an emotional component. Uh, That's not really what's going on. It's not really an organic brain injury. It's, you know, it's something else that's, that's manifested because, you know, she can't let go of this traumatic event. And geez, you know, if she just had the proper treatment and got over this, this traumatic event, you know, she'd be all better. Mm. One of the things in our case that we were able to find out about her symptoms, right, is that because she had this chronic dizziness, right, uh, yeah. and I, I've you know, been through this kind of BNG thing before and knowing what that is and what it tests for and all that stuff's great because it's some objective information, right? You know, the, the eyes are what the VNG is testing and you can't fake that stuff. Right. Because jurors, I think, you know, they're thinking every brain injury client is in there. I mean, unless you're drooling and have slurred speech and those kinds of things that people are familiar with from like strokes. Right. You know, oh, the brain injured plaintiff is just making it seem worse than it is. Right. So we were like, aha. Right. These kinds of tests that help support the brain injury, these objective tests, the VNG, you know, she had several tests that 
our physical therapist that she was referred to is a great vestibular physical therapist, right? They weren't just some typical physical therapist who just works on like orthopedic, you know, knee injuries and things like that. This PT she was seeing was very highly trained in vestibular injuries. And so we took time to have conversations with the treating physical therapist because our clients saw this physical therapist like almost 80 times, something like that over a two- And they testified at trial, the, the, uh, the physical therapist on the vestibular piece? This physical therapist did not end up testifying at trial. They moved away. Hmm. We, had, we had a lot of different experts in the case. And we had, and I, I'll tell you why we didn't have this physical therapist testify at trial. And we, we had kind of one doctor come in because we had so many different treaters. We had a ton, you know, we had a lot of treaters and we had a lot of treatment over, you know, like as Tyrone was saying, right? I mean, this case was four years almost to the day when we were in trial. And so, you know, our client had been treating over this long, expansive period of time. And, you know, we're always told, right, as trial lawyers, simplify, simplify, simplify. And so you know, we took some advice, actually, from the, the, the judge, uh, Judge Buchanan, who didn't end up being the judge who was, who was at trial. We had, we had a great new, new judge who was appointed to the bench. The judge Luxon was the judge who ended up uh, sitting for the trial uh, because Judge Buchanan had retired. But at the beginning of our case, in our case management conference, the judge was like, look, you know, I see a lot of treatment, I see a lot of treaters, you know, I see a lot of experts, I've seen a lot of these cases. You may want to consider getting a medical summary expert. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that's what you guys did. Didn't you use uh, Dr. Reinhardt for that? Right. We used uh, David Reinhardt, who's a physical medicine rehab doctor. Yeah, I like having the physical medicine rehab doctor kind of being this, you know, um, you know, jack of all trades, right? They, they know a lot of stuff about the human body. They got a lot of experience with that. So they can talk about a lot of different things if you need them to. And so and I didn't come up with this on my own. I, you know, I stole this from some other lawyer who, who did it this way too. And, you know, you could probably use different doctors for this, but we felt, you know, a physical medicine rehab doctor was best to come in and kind of do that. You know, especially a brain injury case with with vestibular issues. Great. I wanted to talk to Tyrone because I understand that you did voir dire. So I'm curious on a case like this, do you have any thoughts about sort of what you were looking for, hoping to accomplish in voir dire and what your sort of overall trial strategy was going into this case? I feel like we had so many good facts in this case, good facts that were you know, bad circumstances for our client. This crash completely changed the trajectory of her life for the worse. Mm-hmm. And we got to see over years how this vestibular injury, you know, manifested day in and day out. You know, I come from like a, before I went to law school, I was a professional MMA fighter. And so I'm oh. sort of familiar with TBI injuries and in sports. And I think we all are when we think of boxers or football players. And that's what we think of commonly with TBI. And it's difficult. It was even difficult for me initially to conceptualize how an injury to your vestibular and one that we objectively proved would manifest and really, you know, change this woman's life forever. Right. But we had four years of just seeing her deteriorate, seeing her struggle constantly be nauseous, unable to like cross streets, having to pay people just to walk her across the streets to, to, to get to uh, work. And this is this kind of badass woman that I think they even notably pointed out was like very high up in in her career and really had the, the world as her oyster ahead of her. And this completely changed it. And so the temptation to go in and lead with all of your good facts was really strong, but I took a note out of my training at the public defender's office, you know, all the way back to boot camp, and said, no, we need to make sure that all of the jurors who cannot accept or are immediately turned off by your bad facts are no longer on your jury, whether that's getting them off for cause because they can't follow some instruction given, you know, ultimately at the end of the case, or, you know, getting them off via a peremptory. 
So really it was the exercise of sitting down and determining what are our worst facts, right? Asking for a really big dollar amount, right? The fact that we're the plaintiffs in a personal injury suit. Sometimes folks come and they think they're going to be sitting on a criminal case or or something in their mind that maybe matters more. Um, but just fleshing out all of those biases, uh, you know, she's not sitting there in, in a wheelchair. Um, she hasn't lost any limbs. You know, this is going to be something that I think, you know, when you looked at some, even her deposition, which was just months ago, there were noticeable even physical changes from her injuries, but it wasn't the type of case where, you know, someone's going to be coming in, you know, missing an arm or missing a leg, making sure that they would be open to and be able to award large damages under those circumstances. So it's what we call in the PD's office, running to the bummer, figuring out what are our worst facts, leading with those, not trying to put rose colored glasses on and figuring out who is not going to be able to hear our case you know, fairly and objectively. And then hopefully the folks who are left are the people who are open to you know, all of our themes and theories, the injustices and injuries that our clients suffered. And that's our audience. And oftentimes I find you forget who your audience is about halfway through the trial, but then when a, a verdict come da- comes down and you talk to them afterwards, you remember like, oh man, that's right. We did the work in Voidir to make sure we had the most receptive people to hear our case. And thank goodness for that. Yeah, it was interesting because as you're saying that, I, I heard recently someone say, under-promise and over-perform. And it's sort of like back in the day, I always wanted the case to just get continually better as we went. So even to some degree in opening, trying to undersell the case. And then as you're working through the case, it turns out like, oh man, it's really better than better and better. And I wonder if that's sort of what you're talking about with respect to Voidir, or is that really targeted only towards Voidir and running to the really bad facts in Voidir? I mean, it's it's both, right? So Voidir, you want to run to the really, really bad facts. Don't try to you know, paint them in the way that I would almost say like an inexperienced opposing counsel would, right? Like if they're going to oversell their defense, Mm. then essentially give the jury what their defense is going to be, you know, the way that they're going to paint your bad facts. And if the jurors are like, yeah, no, I don't think that's overreaching or no, absolutely. I think that people can be sitting there and have invisible injuries and it's worth just as much compensation as something that we can see physically manifesting before our eyes. You get all of those people and that's your audience to start. And then you don't oversell an opening. And that's Mm. something that I've learned from being on the defense side uh, in criminal cases. If a prosecutor would get up there and, you know, shoot for the moon and oversell this case, the first thing that I would do in closing at the end would be like, remember when they promised you all of this evidence? Remember when they told you that people were going to come in and say all these things? Sure. That did not happen, right? Let's talk about what actually happened at trial. Let's talk about, and I would even like sit in the witness box, what this witness came in and actually said. So yeah, don't oversell an opening sort of, you don't want to downplay as much as you do or run to the bummer like you do in closing. You just want to more sort of preview, you know, get those jurors writing down an outline for the case. And then when you're presenting your evidence, they're there going in and filling in all of the relevant evidence under that outline. Give them a nice template to understand the case on your own terms, because, you know, it's really, it all goes back to to storytelling. And one of the first things I put up on my board when I'm getting ready for trial is that storytelling arc, Mm, right? Setting the stage for the location, your cast of characters. This was the cool part, you know, having, you know, not done the amount of trial work that Tyrone has done. You know, I really got to see the amazing, you know, work that goes into this kind of, you know, how do you tell the story, right? And, And framing it, you know, and putting it together, which, you know, Tyrone's just kind of a master at. So that was, you know, a lot of fun with the, you know, and I, you know, I remember sitting there, you know, we've, we're drawn up on the, you know, the whiteboards, our story arc, and where does this witness fit in to, mm. you know, we want to make sure, right? We had witnesses for each part of our story arc. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, 
that was a lot of, you know, trial prep, what we were doing, you know, weeding out the window, you know, do we need this witness or not? Like, you know, how many lay witnesses do we need? I think, well, we only had like three lay witnesses, Tyrone. I was going to ask you as we were talking about lay witnesses, because Tyrone had mentioned that this had gone on for four years and you guys saw the client struggling. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you went about choosing the witnesses finding to tell the story of what your client was actually experiencing over all those years. You know, I think that we had this case right before a three-day weekend. And then when I looked at just how many witnesses we like needed, like the must-call folks, I sort of felt like the jury, we need a verdict by the end of the week. Mm. We don't want our jury feeling like they, they're going to go home. They need to be thinking about this case. They need to reconvene on that Tuesday. So I really felt like after we started off, we didn't overpromise, and there was a nice ascent of our evidence and we were proving up the injury that we really only needed to call, you know, one witness for each prop- proposition we were trying to uh, prove. And if we started to pile on cumulative witnesses, you know, we're already the party that's bringing folks here by virtue of filing the case. If we started to waste their time by calling a bunch of witnesses that stood for all the same propositions, I think, you know, they were going to get pretty upset with us. And I think we felt pretty confident after certain witnesses testified and after we were three days or so into trial that the jury was going to be ready for the case. Mm. So that even meant just tightening up our crosses, getting our lay witnesses on and off, and just making it really clear once we close our evidence that we were trying to get this case to the jury so that they could deliberate. So how did you go about deciding which lay witnesses? And did each one of the, you you talked before we kind of cut out about this story arc. So would you explain to me a little bit, what is the story arc and how do the lay witnesses play into the story arc? So, you know, and you can Google it online, but it, it looks sort of like almost like a little bit of a bell curve. And at the bottom of the, the, the curve, like the sort of flat area, is essentially your witnesses, your locations, all of the foundational things you need to tell the story. You want to introduce those very early on so you orient your audience to just what you're talking about. And then there's the rising action. And Keith, we were sort of talking about how you don't want to necessarily come right out of the gate and give them everything in opening, right? That's because you want this sort of rising action to build up to what is like the climax, right? Which is sort of the injury and the, you know, the results and sort of outgrowth of that injury. And then the falling action is how all of that is manifesting. And I think those lay witnesses fall on, can arguably kind of fall on both sides. Mm. You know, we had two that fell on both sides, the ones that could sort of talk about our client before and our client after, one that could really talk about um, our client professionally. She was sort of junior to our client and can just sort of talk about how much of a badass she was before the accident, um, you know, almost sort of in awe of our client, and then sort of talk about, you know, where she was after. We had someone that knew her more personally and could sort of talk about those changes. And then we had someone that didn't really know her, but whose reputation uh, preceded our client and someone that just knew her strictly professionally and had a lot of, I think, sort of credit in the bank to just be able to talk about sort of how it professionally has manifested and sort of this person he was expecting to work with and then ultimately seeing how she deteriorated over the years. And then sort of thinking about those buckets, we felt as though anyone else that we called for that proposition would have been cumulative and the people that we had were really solid. So we tried to keep one witness per one thing we needed to argue in closing and just ran a real tight ship and fit it all into the narrative appropriately. So great. So first question is, how old was your client at the time of trial? And ties into the second question, which is, how did you frame your damages model? What did you all ask for? And how did you all come up with that number? So our client literally turned 60 years old, five days or four days or something before trial. So she is is at the pinnacle of her career, right? This is part of, you know, what we had to deal with in the damages and, you know, in the case was, you know, our client has suffered this injury. It's a very high level government employee, um, you know, in the leadership, executive leadership role, and is still doing that 
job. So this was something, you know, we had to, you know, deal with at trial, right? Is that she has this serious permanent injury to her brain, to her body. It affects her in these different ways and limits her, but she's still working. And so part of our theme in in presenting the damages is this, this loss of, I really like to use loss of earning capacity. I mean, I, I pleaded, you know, I don't know about other lawyers, right? And how they, they do it necessarily, but, you know, I've always in a brain injury case, it's, you know, loss of earning capacity and, you know, what that is. And, and so, you know, we had um, an expert that we got because our client in given the role she was in, you know, had this plan that after a certain period of time in the administration she was in, she was going to leave and go private and, you know, double her salary and double dip is what they call it, where as a government public employee, they're going to accept their public retirement benefits, right? And then go work private in the industry that they've been, you know, regulating and they are experts in. Um, and the defense expert agreed with us on this and, and the defense ended up not calling that expert at trial, but agreed that this was a loss for her, that this plan of working in public service for, you know, 30 years, earning less, but, you know, having the experience that she does have, that she would then go on and, you know, have this really kind of second act to her professional career and put a kind of a capstone on it. And, you know, we, we had hired a vocational rehab expert to do the analysis, right, to, to, to look at the market and see what could our client go out and earn had they not been injured and was able to obtain this, um, you know, second career path, right, that, that she would clearly qualified for. And the defense agreed with, uh, the defense expert agreed. They didn't, they didn't say that at trial, but, you know, the defense <laughs> expert, you know, agreed with it in their report. And part of the beauty of some of our lay witnesses is that these were in one, one of those individuals or two of them actually did this and went on, you know, knew her from before and the after, like, yeah, you know, I've done this, right? You Did know, the double dip you're talking about? Yeah, and, it, you know, was a regulator of industry and then goes on and then works on the other side of the fence. Sure, sure. Um, and that this is a common thing in the industry to happen. And so, uh, you know, given our clients' injuries and, and the limitations that they had, you know, travel was a big part of it. Traveling the world uh, in this, this industry was no longer possible for our client. And that was a major loss. And so that was one of our big damages buckets was the, uh, the loss of Marie because she was still working and earning a salary. Now she was working out of, I think, some of the good graces of her wonderful boss and a very understanding, strong support staff that she had below her. So you guys are able to, to sort of board this future economic loss of earning capacity claim, past economics. So how much money are we talking about in terms of economic damages and uh, what was the ultimate award on that? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you argued impairment, brain injury piece of that. Yeah, so, you know, we had struggled for, for a, a long time. Like, not this, we didn't want to do this, you know, all right, we're going to ask for the moon, right? And, you know, we could, we could come up with any, you know, scenario of calculations that, you know, would lead to a eight-figure, dollar-figure kind of thing. And, okay. you know, we knew that that was going to be an ask that was probably too big. You know, we'd rather, like you were talking about before, we want to undersell, right, this, and then, you know, have the jury say, all right, we're, we're going to be going for something in the middle, here, you know, we're going to give you some ranges. Here's how we came up with these ranges. We're going to go with something in the middle, present it to you, right? And, and you know, hope that the jury then appreciates the work that we put into it, the presentation, and then says, all right, we're, but we're going to give more. And so in terms of the economic damages, you know, we had a future life care plan that we had an expert, you know, come in and do an in-home assessment for our client and rely on some of the treating physicians um, and some other experts to say, you know, what are the physical impairments? How are those going to manifest 
for this client over the course of her life? And, you know, what, what do they need for, you know, an in-home um, kind of care? Uh, so we had that damages bucket economically, you know, which ended up being somewhere in the name neighborhood of, you know, 600,000 or something like that, from what I remember. And then, you know, we had the, the, the loss of earning capacity damages bucket that we had calculated out through our vocational rehab expert, where we said, okay, look, can you go out into the industry, into the marketplace and see, you know, what is it that our client could earn, right? So you have something to, to, to base your, you know, opinion on and give us some numbers, right? Sure. And, yeah. and so, you know, our client, our, our, our vocational expert, you know, went out into the industry, did a market analysis, found, found resources that they, that, you know, that are reliable, you know, in the industry, our, our client was a former lawyer, so they could, you know, go out and look at these resources to see what, yeah, so for the economic damages, we, we had the loss of earning capacity, and we had our expert testify about how they came up with the, the salary that our client could earn, you know, it, had they gone off and gone on, on the other side of the fence and gone into the private, private sector, right? And so then, sure. then we had an economics expert come in and crunch those numbers and come up with the retirement benefits they lost, you know, Social Security, bunch of numbers, right? And, you know, put it all in a package for the jury to, to hear and give a range. And I, and I think at the top end of our range, we were at like 4 million something. And we, we did not feel wow. so comfortable that the, the jury heard these numbers from our experts and how they calculated them. And you know, gave a range. I think the bottom end of the range for loss of or earning capacity, what we valued that at, and uh, the defense fought us really hard on on this loss of earning capacity and tried to recategorize it as you know not an economic damage damage, but something related to physical impairment. And the, they lost on that issue. Um, That's strange. At, <laughs> yeah, at trial, but I'm not sure that it really mattered. But anyway, they had a philosophical difference in, at, at that, but. So we had like a range of I think one million to four million for economics for 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 a loss of earning capacity evaluation, and so ultimately you know the jury came back they they assigned some fault to our client because the testimony at trial you know we also had this this issue of you know did they cross on a flashing hand or just did they have the walk sign, and so both plaintiff and defense experts typically or pretty much agreed with this notion that she she crossed started crossing on a flashing hand. So the jurors did sign some comparative fault, but we got an economic award of one and a half million. Hmm, great. We got a award of one million for physical impairment. Wow. And then for the non-economic damages, basically what we did knowing that there's a cap out there. We didn't want to oversell again to the jurors and be like, you know, non-economic damages, you know, award this huge, huge number, right? Based off of, you know, this person's 60, they're going to live to 85, you know, give, you know, $100 a day kind of a thing for non-economics. And, you know, you have this huge number and then we get knocked down. The other reason we didn't want to do that is because, you know, sometimes, Jurors get confused with this non-economic damages versus the physical impairment. And sometimes they're like, well, we gave all this money for, for non-economic damages, so we're going to not give as much in physical impairment. As, you know, as, as lawyers, right, we know the physical impairment section is not capped, right? That's the bucket yep, we want yep. the jurors to, to award the most in, right? So we, we, were, we were worried, right, if we, we go for some big non-economic number, they would give us less in physical impairment. So we, you know, we kind of just – we went – very conservative there and calculated out a number for the jurors that basically was right around the cap. I think we got 474,000 or something for non-economic damages, which is, you know, nothing given what our injuries are, but knowing that there's a cap that would have knocked us down to 468, you know, it's not a big change for us. And we wanted to make sure physical impairment was our, was our big bucket that, that we want the jury to, to award the most in. And who handled first close and second close? Or did you split that up or did one person do that? Um, I did both. And how did you, 
did you, did you sort of, I've, I've heard some people sometimes say with the non-economic damage number, like we don't want a penny more than this. Did, was there a way you sort of telegraphed? That's not what this case is about. This case is about the impairment bucket. Because I think all of us that are out trying these cases, we're constantly trying to figure out how do you get the jurors to put the money in the impairment bucket and not the non-economic damage bucket. And it seems like you threaded the needle perfectly on this case. The, the, the analysis on non-economics was, I think, less detailed. There was less time during my closing that I spent on it. And then I just took page out of primacy and recency, right? So the first thing I talked about was economics. The last thing I talked about was permanent impairment. And non-economics was somewhere in the middle, right? Primacy, the you know, economics, that's important. Recency, the last thing they're going to hear, a very detailed enumerated calculation for how we get to permanent impairment. And then, you know, permanent impairment was the crux and the cornerstone of this case. So that's what I hit really hard in rebuttal as well. So I think sending to the mess a message to the jury without saying, I don't want to pin you more, but just sending that message that permanent impairment is really, really important. And that's ultimately what this case is about. It's the loss of the ability and the freedom and the capacity to live her life as she saw fit and earned over a career of public service and having to live with a permanent injury that's going to be debilitating and affect the quality of her life in perpetuity, right? Those are the two big buckets and just really emphasizing them, spending time and talking about one first and one last, I think is how we highlighted it. Wow, what an amazing result and what an what a feel good story when you think about the difference that you made in your client's life. So kudos. I, I was asked I was thinking to myself, what did did the defense suggest any numbers in closing? What did they think the, the jurors should award? Nothing. Zero. Because they were just going straight defense verdict? Yeah, they said she was fifty percent at fault. She'll get nothing. And again, I think that that was you know, that was a big swing, right? That was a big overreach. I mean, this idea that based on all the evidence we'd heard throughout the week, she should walk away with, you know, nothing based on these sort of pontifications from their experts who reviewed stacks of records and came up with what if scenarios they were comfortable with this jury awarding her nothing. When I think the evidence just supported something, I think maybe, you know, if they had not tried to hit that home run, I don't know if we'd be in a different position, but I don't know. I, I don't know if it was the, would have been the, how I would have played it if I was on their side of the fence. And I think the last question is, did you spend any time in closing or how much time talking about Colorado's modified comparative fault, making sure that the jurors sort of understood 50% is zero? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I spend a lot of time on that, um, and really pointed out, maybe not a lot of time, but there was it was a pause. It was a, you know, we had a, a, a great picture of her before the accident, sort of transposed with her four years later after she's deteriorated and just really emphasizing that after all is said and done, they're okay with her walking out of here with nothing, right? And that's what they're asking you to do. And that's, if wow. you go 50-50, that is what will happen, right? And just really pausing, letting that sink in. And I don't know, I, I, think, I think that it was, it, it was powerful. It felt powerful when we were uh, during closing. I think Tyrone did a really nice job too with the, the PowerPoint slides, you know, that, that were part of that is not talking down to the jurors, but showing them this is how you fill out the verdict form, right? Sure. And here's, you know, yep. in red, Kind of here's the areas, right? And you know what we want you to put in here. And there is that that one section in the verdict form that shows, you know, the percentage of fault that you're assigning to each, you know, one of one of the parties. You know, and I thought it was ironic that the defense the whole time is saying plaintiff is overreaching, plaintiff is overreaching. That's what their whole case was, right? Every time we were like, no, we're, we're here's our range, we're in the middle, you know, and then they're like, no, give them a big fat zero. I think the psychology world, that's called projection, right? <laughs> well, Tyrone, the, the, what I wanted to say is um, you mentioned pausing. And I feel like the pregnant pause and trial is just the most powerful weapon and just letting it sit there 
almost to the point where it becomes uncomfortable. Can just picture you doing that with, they want her to walk out of here with nothing. Amazing results. And I, when I read this result, I was just so, so happy. And I want to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your very busy lives to chat with us about the case. So you have inspired me. Uh, I feel great about getting in front of Judge Luxon, which I had had some concerns about, but I, now I am very, very excited about. And overall, just congratulations to you both. So thank you both for coming on the show. And we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Keith. Pleasure to be on. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration from today's courtroom warriors. And thank you for being in the arena. Make sure to subscribe and join us next time as we continue to dissect real cases and learn from Colorado's top trial lawyers. Our mission is to empower our legal community, helping us to become better trial lawyers to effectively represent our clients. Keep your connection to Colorado's best trial lawyers alive at www.thectlc.com.